Season 2, Episode 6 of the More Math for More People podcast on July 12th, 2022. Here we go. Cheers. Hello, everyone. I'm Misty. And I'm Joel. And this is the More Math for More People podcast brought to you by CPM Educational Program. On this podcast, we discuss the CPM curriculum, trends in math education, and share strategies to shift instructional practices to create a more inclusive and student-centered classroom. We also highlight upcoming CPM professional learning opportunities and have conversations with math educators about how they do what they do. And we always try to have a little bit of fun and laughter as well. Indeed we do. So come and find out what shenanigans we're up to on this episode. Boom. Hey, Joel, I know what day it is. What day is it? Today is National Eat Your Jello Day. Oh, I love that. You know, living here in Utah, it's our state snack food. Jello is your state snack food? Mm-hmm. Officially. Wow. I wonder if Oregon has a state snack food. I wonder too. Oh. We don't have a state snack food. We have a state nut. Oh. It's the hazelnut. Okay. Or the filbert, if you prefer. Of course it is. I wouldn't expect anything less. Yeah. It doesn't It doesn't say... We have a state mushroom and we have a state fruit. Anyway, okay, so back to Jell-O. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite flavor of Jell-O? I do. It's green. <laughs> the, I, I don't know if you call it lime or something like that. And I like my jello with fresh fruit in it. So like put some grapes or something like that. I thought you couldn't put fruit into the lime one for some reason. I don't know if that's true or not, but hmm. I do I do, so apparently you can. But <laughs> Oh no, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's you can't put certain fruits into jello. I, I think know. if you if there's certain fruits you put into jello, then it doesn't firm up the right way. Oh, I I've I've had that problem a lot actually, where it's just like a smoothie or something more things more things to look up i don't think it's i don't think it's pineapple but there's something like you like if you look on the jello Citru- box i think like it says you don't put acid it's too yeah it's a it has a, a different acid that doesn't let the jello firm up very well like you're trying to make a jello mold mm-hmm. and not have all the jello the fruit just fall to the bottom that's right we have to like let it solidify a little bit yep. the fruit in anyway yep. it's, that's kind of like you know next level cooking well <laughs> every year for thanksgiving my mom requires that we make a jello and the jello that my mom requires is green jello cottage cheese black olives and carrots that's all in the jello yep and nobody else eats it but my mom but we have to make it every year okay wait <laughs> do you take the jello is the wait so is the jello okay i have questions mm-hmm. do you mix all that together and let the jello solidify. No. So it's not a jello mold. You cut up the jello. You kind of you kind of do your strategy before. Oh, so you No, no. Oh. You let it firm up a little bit and then you start putting the things in. Like so you, does, you start with the cottage cheese so it's mixed evenly. Okay. But then you don't want the olives to sink, so you got to kind of have that little bit so it's stages. Uh-huh. It's like a and layer. And you top it with uh, yes. So you top it with the carrots at the end. Wait, so it's cottage cheese? <laughs> yep. Olives and then jello? Yeah. Where's the jello? No, the jello is from the, with the cottage cheese from the beginning. So you mix. Oh, it's very confusing. I know. So do you mix the cottage cheese? <laughs> like you let the jello cool a little bit. 
Yep. It starts to solidify a little bit, and then you mix the cottage cheese, so it's kind of like a opaque jello. Then sort of, it doesn't feel like layers. It feels like it's one dish. Yeah. Okay. Sort of thing. <laughs> interesting. But none of us like it except for my mother. Well, so she gets to eat it all. I know, and she'll be writing into CPM podcast <laughs> at CPM dot org. CPM dot org. <laughs> <laughs> she won't need to request the recipe though, because she already has. That's it. right. <laughs> she will not. Uh, and I, I, I would be more than willing to share this recipe, mm. even if one person asks. This time. <laughs> Only one person. <laughs> Uh, maybe we'll so just silly. maybe we'll just even make it a link in the podcast for this week. <laughs> That's right. A link to Joel's mom's Jello salad <laughs> recipe. I love it. That's great. My favorite flavor of Jello is red. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> so the strawberry, cherry doesn't matter. Just red it doesn't matter. I don't know. Yeah, I can't tell the difference between any of those anyway. Do you make Jello a lot? I uh, can't remember the last time I made Jello. So no. Okay. I'm trying to think like, <laughs> when did I make Jello last? It would have been a long time ago. I have eaten Jello because I, you know, I've had to eat the, you know, eat the little okay. cups or whatever. But I'm, yeah. I think I'm more of a pudding person. If I can choose between Jello and pudding, I'm going to choose the pudding. Mm, I love pudding. But uh, it's true. But on Jello Day, we're both going to oh, s- yeah. probably make some Jello. I assume, oh sure. But... I I will eat some Jello. How's that? I, <laughs> okay. Making an entire Jello that's complicated. That sounds like a lot. I remember making it when I was a kid, and you had to like pour the stuff in and then mm-hmm. there was the ones that came with sugar or without sugar or something mm-hmm. i don't know and then you put the sugar in you just hot water pour, cold like, water, like a lot of hot things. water so you had to be you had yeah. to be uh supervised during that time because it was boiling hot water <laughs> with the whisk yeah, and, to, <laughs> and then put it into the container i always wanted to make them in fancy jello molds mm. and then but it's always trick to get them out of the molds I know. i've not been successful there's tricks there's tricks to these things i'd like to learn those tricks well there's some of it is you have to put it in the you put it into the warm water for a little bit so that Edges and then it'll, so it comes out of the mold. Okay, yeah. I just learned a trick. So anyway, okay, so it's National Eat Your Jello Day. National Eat Your Jello Day. So I don't have to make Jello. Just you just have to eat it. Great, perfect. I will be having red Jello. Excellent. I'll be having green. So Joel and I are here today with Rachel Lambert. Uh, Rachel is a former classroom teacher, special education teacher, and is currently an assistant professor in the, I'm not going to say this right, is it Gervitz? I just really learned how to say it. Oh, hi. Uh, It's Givertz. Givertz, like you're going to give something. Givertz. All right. So Givertz Graduate School of Education at University of California, Santa Barbara. Her scholarly work includes investigating the intersections between disability studies in education and mathematics education. And I learned about Rachel in a November 2019 Ignite talk that she gave at the California Mathematics Council South Conference, which was about the myth of low kids and high kids. So she has a blog and links to her ongoing research at her website, mathematizingforall.com, and we'll put a link about that in the podcast description. So welcome to the More Math for More People podcast, Rachel. Yeah, welcome, Rachel. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for inviting me. I feel like your title just says it all. I'm for it. More math for more people. Awesome. Absolutely. That is one of our big things for sure. So why don't you start by just telling us how you became interested in and passionate about your research focus? Like, What do you want to change about math education? Well, I was a teacher for about 10 years. I taught mostly in New York City, and I taught a fifth and sixth grade mixed age class where where the kids looped with me. And I taught really 
I was able to work with Kathy Fosno, who is a researcher in realistic mathematics. So it's about deep problem solving. It's about engaging kids in authentic contexts. It's about powerful models. So really similar stuff to the work that you guys do. And I taught in an inclusive classroom. So it included kids with a variety of disabilities. Uh, and I found that the deeper, the more authentic the problems were, the more my students engaged in it. And the kids who had had bad experiences in math in the past, who maybe came into my classroom and said, I am not a math person, I am not good at math, were often kids with disabilities who had been only given access to really rote memorization kind of learning. Mm -hmm. And when I like opened math up for them, they just thrived. I mean, it didn't go perfectly. It was still challenging and lots of wonderful problems to solve, but it, it, it really, um, awakened their problem solving. And the fact that there are multiple ways to solve it, then they had, they would always come up with multiple ways to solve it. And it added to the diversity of thinking in the room. And it, it mattered a lot to me. And it mattered a lot to me also because disability is something that I grew up with. It's something that I value. It's a positive identity from the way I was raised. And, but there was a real big mismatch for me. When I took these experiences and then I, I wanted to get deeper into math and special education and mm -hmm. disability. And when I read research in special education, it seemed to tell me the exact opposite. It told me that mm. students with disabilities, it almost insinuated again and again that they didn't have the capacity to think mm. and that to allow them to come up with their own strategies would somehow be mistreating the students. Oh. I knew that this was wrong. I knew this was wrong for my family experience. I knew this was wrong for my teaching experience. And so... I went to get my doctorate really as a classroom teacher who had a very specific focus. My focus was like, wait, is this right? <laughs> this can't be right. And how can we, I know that you can't just decide kids can't think. Right. You can't decide an entire group of kids can't think. And you can't deprive them again and again of access to mathematics making meaning, to mathematics being real for them. And so that's been my my passion. Mm -hmm. And I'm so lucky that I found something like that that was has sustained me. And now I'm a, a professor and I teach people who are going to be teachers. And that's what I get to talk about and explore with them. And I love it. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I, there's so many times I've come across that idea that particular groups of kids can't, they can't access it. They can't get to it. So many ways we take kids from this place of like, oh, math is just memorizing. I'm not good at memorizing. So then I can't do math. Mm -hmm. And it's just so untrue. So I, I love that. I love that. Absolutely. What are some of the ways that you opened up those ideas for those students? Well, as a teacher, I mean, it would be beginning with a, with good problems, beginning with, and by a good problem, something they're going to get interested in, usually something that had a story around it. Mm. Um, I would take textbook problems and I would always make them into these, like, often like my brother was a, needed work. I don't know. <laughs> this is kind of weird, but I had like these ongoing stories, like my brother needed work and he worked at this kind of factory and here's the kind of problem mm -hmm. that he dealt with. And my students would be like, Oh, your brother again, <laughs> he needs our help. So it's, I took a lot of different yeah. beautiful problems, but I would often like change them into these like mm -hmm. situations in which I was desperate mm -hmm. for their help. And we, we made, we mapped the streets of New York City. We would walk around New York and like look at the windows to understand arrays. We would draw pictures. We would make it meaningful and relevant to them, to my students who, um, I taught in East Harlem and my students were, um, black and Latinx and they taught me what was meaningful to them. And they were good at teaching me when things weren't interesting or meaningful. They were excellent teachers in that way. And, and so I learned from them how to, what engaged them and then how to fit the mathematics into it. 
Mm. It was so it was an amazing place to work because I actually had a lot of freedom. And that freedom meant I could experiment a lot with the different kinds of structures and problems I gave the students. So it was about experimentation. It was about getting them to participate. Like, how do we set forth problems that interest kids? But then how do we support it so that all kids engage and participate and talk in small groups who have different ways of engaging and participating? I don't expect kids to all participate the same. Mm -hmm. I think if we think about what neurodiversity means, it means that people have different ways of communicating and different ways of engaging and different ways of building relationships. And so that needs to be valued. So the classroom has to be an open space where kids can make choices and there's support for different ways of being a mathematician. Absolutely. I think that that idea of neurodiversity is so powerful. I mean, it's, you know, embracing that idea that we all think and process and make sense of things differently. And that's, that's true for everyone. I mean, some of us are more on some part of the spectrum, whatever it might be, right? So that we maybe process more differently, but that is a value. And that is something that kids can really bring together. And I think all of those different ways that people make sense is such an internal process for all of us, whether we feel like we're good at math or not, right? Whether we've been good in a traditional class or not, we all actually think very differently. <laughs> so the idea of neurodiversity is that, you know, it was created by autistic self-advocates mm -hmm. to describe the being autistic is different, mm -hmm. definitely, but it's not inherently bad and comes with a set of strengths and challenges. And instead of being fixed, they're looking for for us to create spaces that work for people with autism, right? For autistic people. So there's this idea of neurodiversity and like neurotypical. And, but a lot of people argue about that because people are like, there's really no such thing as neurotypical. Mm -hmm. There's different kinds of neurodiversity. Dyslexia is a neurodiversity that I study a lot in relationship to mathematics and have done work with dyslexic mathematicians. So I know I probably the most about that neurodiversity, which dyslexia is also a spectrum too, right? As well as autism. So no one is really neurotypical, right? Um, right. and that idea and universal design for learning has a name for that and learner variability, which is just to think instead of thinking like, there's neurodiversity and neurotypical ways of engaging. Think about how we're all different in how we, in how we think and how we engage in all these different parameters, like how much you like to talk out loud, your affinity for mm. this kind of problem, your prior knowledge in this particular area, and your, how much you engage with visuals versus like you're more of an algebraic geometry type, right? Yeah, so right. there's that variability makes each person kind of unique. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's, I mean, definitely hits on what I, the way I think about it and see it is that every one of us is, is taking whatever, however we think about it and see it or not see it in our brains, whatever it might be, and how we're connecting those pieces of information is very individual, right? I can't tell you how it makes sense to you. Like I can tell you how it makes sense to me, but I can't tell you here, here's, here's how it makes sense. Then you're just memorizing something. Okay. This is what it's supposed to make sense. This is what I have to do. And that takes away from your actual ability to make sense of it yourself. Mm -hmm. So Misty had mentioned before about your Ignite talk in 2019. And so maybe just one question to add to this conversation here is what is the myth of high kids and low kids? <laughs> uh, well, the myth um, of high kids and low kids is that they're, that that's really a scientific, effective, or even a really descriptive way of describing or categorizing kids. And let's add on the idea that it's, it also can be a destructive and a, mm -hmm. have effects that we don't intend when we think about kids that way. So the first idea is that there's this mythology around, we think about, I'm sure listeners have heard kids described as my low kids and my high kids and my flyers and my, I don't know, I, as a special educator, it was often um, Rachel's kids that they were described that way. So 
there's a lot of different ways. And one, one thing you can think about is how our kids described at your school site, like how, cause sometimes this gets pretty pernicious and like kind of subtle. So mm. what kind of language are we using? And then like what, what's underneath that language? So underneath the language of low, well, why do we say that? Why do we say low and high? If I think we asked most teachers, they'd say something like, well, it's the kids who are low scores or high scores. Well, what's the, what is the access we're actually, is this, is this based on your last assessment or is this based on sort of a general sense you have that some kids need more support in math and other kids don't? But what I really want to question is anytime we think we're like taking our kids and putting them on a linear, like a one linear aspect, we are only doing that for that one particular thing. And that actually connects to what we were just talking about before, like mm-hmm. kids complexity. Because you could say, okay, Mahir, these kids scored low on an assessment. These kids scored high. Now take those same kids and try to think about, well, who participates most actively in discussion? Wait, now they just got reordered. Mm -hmm. Or who is the most, um, who perseveres when they're really stuck? Now it just got reordered again. Because the idea of our kids being in these static, like low and high groups, if that's how we're thinking about them, we're probably not thinking deeply enough about how unique and how variable they are. And so I brought in, in the talk, I brought in ideas about um, neurodiversity, neuroplasticity, basically the idea that our brains change as we do and experience things. So we don't want to think about kids in fixed ways because what we're trying to do is change their brains and help them grow. We want to think about them that way, right? Right. And so that's, I guess, the other thing is that math, I mean, we have an an idea of math as being this very static ladder instead of a web. Mm -hmm. And this low and high connects to this sort of limited idea of what math is, like you're and this gets really thrown out the window if you're thinking about neurodiversity, because in in work that I've done, I did a, a research paper with a dyslexic mathematician, Edmund Harris, who is an amazing and fascinating person who you should interview. We interviewed other dyslexic mathematicians because he's a dyslexic mathematician. And we look, we were wondering like how these mathematicians thought. We found like connections to topology, to visual thinking, to like real, real strengths and collaboration and creativity in mathematics. Mm-hmm. And we also found that none of them had memorized their multiplication tables, even though they were working <laughs> at universities. What? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> but we know it's in U.S. schools particularly kids are trapped at that spot. If they can't memorize their multiplication tables, it's like the crisis that never ended and they get stuck there. Yeah. And so that connects this low high thing because we, we think of that memorization as coming before the complex algebra work. Or re- so we, we make them low. We keep them low because mm-hmm. they, we think they can't do something basic. I've known um, amazing mathematicians who can't count by ones but can do much more complicated things. And this, so it's a, if you really think about neurodiversity, it's about complexity and it's not about simple. Low and high is too simple. Right, right. In addition, I think it's also about a really limited perspective about what mathematics is, mm-hmm. right? That mathematics is calculating and somehow it's, it's oh, I do this stuff and I am a human calculator. And if I'm not a human calculator, I can't do math. Well, that's a really limited perspective on mathematics and a really limited understanding and then creating this, you know, artificial gateway to the rest of the beauty and complexity and interconnectedness of it. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned too in your, in that talk about the normal brain. And I think that's what you guys are talking about. What is normal? Like what is (laughs) that thing? That we're talking about. When I'm doing work with teachers, I'll always be like, okay, everybody normal, like raise their hands. <laughs> and it's so, 
weird, but no one has ever raised their hands. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> That's really like, <sighs> so this so this idea with the ladder, I really I like this. It's related to one of the one of your blog posts. So that was part one of our conversation with Rachel Lambert. We had so many wonderful things to talk with her. Our conversation went on for some time. So we are giving it to you in two parts here on the podcast. So you'll need to come back in a couple of weeks to hear the rest of what we talked about with Rachel. I wanted to read to you a blog post by Dylan Kane. Uh, this was posted online at edutopia.org. And it's called Thwarting Deficit Narratives in Math Class. Messages in the world about who can and cannot be successful in math influence students' perceptions of themselves. These messages hold some back and push others forward. Some students see themselves as full participants in mathematics, and some do not. These self-assessments can be predicted by race, class, gender, sexuality, and more and they can reinforce the stereotypes in those initial messages, perpetuating inequitable educational outcomes. Aditya Adredya calls these messages deficit master narratives. Our classrooms are not islands. The prejudices and biases of the world impact us. These deficit narratives send clear signals about who is and isn't a mathematician. Ignoring them allows deficit thinking to proliferate, to undermine such thinking, I can go into each class assuming that every student is brilliant and that my job is to find ways for each student to recognize and celebrate their brilliance. Describing ways in which we can push back against deficit narratives, Rochelle Gutierrez uses the phrase rehumanizing mathematics. Math is often seen as a sterile subject of esoteric truths and arcane formality, inhuman and accessible only to a select few. Rehumanizing math means helping every student bring their full self to class and see themselves as authentic doers of mathematics rather than observers of a distant subject. Rehumanizing math can feel like an enormous task. How can teachers get started? One idea Gutierrez identifies is broadening what we think of as mathematics. Many students see math as a subject about remembering the right procedure and then calculating quickly and accurately. Yet the discipline of mathematics is also about making sense of new ideas, reconciling different representations, and exploring potential contradictions. Mathematicians practice these habits of mind to move the field forward and explore new frontiers. What might broadening mathematics to value these habits look like in a high school math class? My pre-calculus students are often confused about asymptotes when we study rational functions. A rational function can never intersect its vertical asymptote, but can intersect its horizontal asymptote. This potential contradiction feels frustrating and counterintuitive to students, and they often complain that these graphs don't make sense. I used to tie myself in knots trying to help students reason through this tension within the definition of a function, building towards ideas about limits and end behavior. I see so much beautiful mathematical learning in this moment. But in my rush to impart my knowledge and my perspective, I was missing something critical. The instinct to question and to push at seeming contradictions is an essential way of being mathematically smart. When students say, that doesn't make sense, 
they're attempting to reconcile their ideas with the evidence in front of them. They're not confused. They're drawing on their knowledge and engaging in critical mathematical thinking. My role as a teacher is to recognize that thinking as an essential part of being mathematically smart and to help my students see themselves as practicing mathematics in a new way, not as being confused about a hard concept. We often tell ourselves that in math, there's always a right and a wrong answer and skip past moments of ambiguity and tension. But these can be moments of productive struggle and learning. And they can also be moments when we broaden the ways that students see themselves as mathematically smart. Mathematics as a field has advanced when mathematicians ask questions to resolve uncertainty. And we can embrace moments of ambiguity as opportunities to broaden what our students see as doing and practicing mathematics. Being smart doesn't always mean knowing how to solve a problem. Just as often, it means knowing how to ask a useful question. When teachers help students to see themselves as mathematically smart in new ways, we create new opportunities for students to recognize their brilliance and undermine messages that might tell students that they aren't able to be successful in mathematics. Announcements, announcements. For this week's announcement, we have Jenny White, who is the Regional Professional Learning Coordinator for the Northwest Region, and she has an announcement about content sessions. Take it away, Jenny. Content sessions provide participants an opportunity to collaborate and engage with the mathematical storyline of the courses they teach. These live virtual sessions, led by an experienced CPM classroom teacher, offer course-specific support via a walkthrough of the chapters to gain insight on how the chapter fits into the mathematical storyline of the course. Content sessions offer additional support in conjunction with the on-demand content modules. Both are available through the Professional Learning Portal. The first session is July 19th, so sign up for your content sessions today. So that's a wrap for this episode of the More Math for More People podcast. For more information and to stay connected, you can find CPM on both Twitter and Facebook. The music for the podcast was created by Julius H. and can be found on pixabay.com. Join us for the next episode of More Math for More People. What day will that be, Joel? It'll be July 26th, All or Nothing Day, National All or Nothing Day. So it's that finally that time that all those things you've kind of been wanting to do it's finally time you just stop and you do it whether it's make a new friend or do a new workout maybe it's jump out of a plane maybe it's take risks maybe it's build that new porch but it's all or nothing day it's just the perfect way to live life is to just put your all into something it's an investment it makes you feel good you get it done and you're committed to it and so we'll find out what kind of risk takers misty and i are and as we discuss national all or nothing day. We'll see you there.